Welcome back to Camp 8. This is Eli Sagor with the University of Minnesota, back with Kyle Gill. How you doing, Kyle? I'm doing well. Field season is up and running, Eli. How have you been doing? I've been doing okay. Uh, yeah, things are going pretty well. We've got uh, some really exciting uh, new things happening here. We have just been able to hire a new educational program specialist. Caitlin Wilson is going to be coming to join us at the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative. She comes from the University of Maine, and we're really excited to have her on board. She'll start later this week, so that's going to be great. And I think, pretty sure listeners are going to hear her voice uh, before too long on the podcast, too. What's new with you? Uh, at the Forestry Center, the uh, the recent update from the wolves that we got to I got to work with a couple weeks ago is that at least four of the pups are still uh, part of the pack and Mike Schrag thinks that all five of them are, but the pups might have chewed off one of the collars. So the, the pups seem to be doing well and growing. Um, and speaking of growing, we, we've been planting this last couple of weeks around the forestry center. So a couple of different projects have gotten up and running. The main one that I've been involved with is our climate adaptation demonstration site and that's in partnership with NIACS, the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science um, and you, people can learn more about that if they want by um, looking up stand 57 on forestadaptation.org. Uh, so it's a, yeah, a project that's been ongoing for a couple of years and we just are now planting into a stand that was harvested a couple of years ago. The uncertainty around COVID made made us do the planting internally, and that always takes longer than the operational crew. It's a good reminder that those operational crews are the true professionals that plant the millions of trees around Minnesota and the region. Yeah, it's funny. We were talking earlier today, and you mentioned that you think if you had hired a crew, they would have been had it all done in six hours, and you're you're a few days in now. Probably take six days, but <laughs> and the quality won't be quite as good, but it'll be good enough. Those trees yeah. they are pretty resilient. That's great. So for this episode, we're going to hear from Jim Boyer. Jim is just a really interesting guy. He's a former faculty member at the University of Minnesota. Uh, someone that I've known for a long time, and, and Kyle, I understand you've taken a class from Jim, is that right? Yeah, he mentioned, in the interview, he'll mention the class, I think it's its initial title, um, I can't recall what it is, but I think when I took it, it was called Energy and the Environment, or something like that, or Natural Resources, and a super memorable class. I've had a huge amount of respect for Jim um, ever since taking that class, because he helps help me to, I don't know, take a, take He's really influenced the perspective on which I approach natural resources. And this, I was really looking forward to hearing your interview with him. Yeah, it's great. And uh, we'll come back and say more after we hear from Jim, but he's really a leader in life cycle assessment uh, and helping us to understand environmental impacts associated with not just the production of wood products and, and other materials, but also consumption. Uh, and Jim, I, I know for me over the years, like you just said, has really helped me to think a little bit more deeply and, and uh, more comprehensively about about some of those things, the impacts that, that I have and some of the decisions that I uh, make uh, you know, on the environment. So let's go to the interview. Let's hear from Jim. Today we talk with Dr. Jim Boyer. Following a long career on the faculty of the University of Minnesota, Jim is now a senior contributor at Dovetail Partners in Minneapolis. He's published extensively both in both academic and popular outlets, including numerous reports and life cycle analyses of products from Christmas trees to refrigerators to transportation options. Prominent in Jim's work are analyses of the emerging bioeconomy, 
the environmental footprint of wood products and various substitute materials. Much of this work is captured in his book, The Irresponsible Produce Pursuit of Paradise, which is just a terrific book. It's a deeply informative and entirely approachable book, the second edition of which came out in 2017. Today's conversation will focus on that research and how it can inform our understanding of forestry and wood products from an environmental perspective. Jim, welcome to Camp 8. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. Well, before we get too deep into the results of your research, let's start with how you tend to approach your work. Much of your research involves an approach, like I said, called life cycle analysis or LCA. So what is life cycle analysis and how would you go about conducting one? Maybe you can give us an example to illustrate the idea. Yeah, life cycle assessment uh, is, is all about looking at systems and parts and pieces of systems and how they, how they act together. Uh, for a long time, I've looked at uh, evaluation of environmental impacts of things, perceptions that people have, uh, and it's always bothered me that, that those perceptions seem to be uh, guided a great deal by intuition and bias, <clears throat> which uh, studies show are notoriously inaccurate in, in trying to really to determine what an impact is. So in life cycle assessment, what's done is, uh, let's just take a fountain pen as an example. We take all the little pieces of that fountain pen, every part of it, including the ink, and we trace all of that back to its origin. Uh, if, it's, if it's a metal housing, we take, take that back and we look at the mining and, and processing and all the parts and pieces. We look at all the emissions, effluents, and waste associated with that. Um, Part of that would be to look further at, okay, what difference does it make if we put a ton of carbon dioxide or SO2 into the atmosphere? What's the impact on acidification, human health, global warming potential, uh, uh, non-renewable resource depletion, and so on? And, so, and, and you do this in such a way uh, that it's governed by a set of international protocols. So if I do an assessment like this and a group in Austria does the same assessment, we should get more or less the same, same result. Um, and so it's a very powerful tool for determining environmental impact. So if we go beyond a, a, a ballpoint pen, we could look at a ton and so forth. Then we can go the next step and say, okay, what if we make a, a vehicle? What if we produce a car? Now, now we're really into the weeds, right? Because we got all of these parts. We got plastic and metal and you know all the kind of things. But, but once again, you'd track all of that stuff. And so what LCA is in, in the big scheme of things, it's nothing more than a, than a fairly complex uh, accounting scheme in which you're looking at a whole series of impacts and you add them all up at the end and then you figure out what the heck does that mean? That's, That's great. And a lot of LCA your work is, is based on LCA. And as I said, you've looked at, you've conducted life cycle assessments of a variety of different kinds of products and, and uh, activities, things we do and how we get around and so on. What do you see as, as the limits of LCA? Is it, no, no tool is perfect. So where, where does it come up short? Yeah, LCA is a very powerful tool, but in its power, one of the great things about LCA is that you use data. It's a data-driven system, and that's, that's why it's reproducible scientifically. But that's also a weakness in that LCA does not 
take into account things that cannot be precisely measured. For example, how do you put a value on, if you're gonna compare, for example, um, equivalent, functionally equivalent amounts of steel and of wood, how do you compare uh, the impacts in a forest that's been newly harvested versus a large hole in the ground and, and take into account that that forest is going to regenerate if it's properly managed. The, the big hole in the ground is going to remain that at some point it might be restored to something. You know, how do you deal with that in a, in a precise way? Well, you can't do it. And so uh, the way that's handled within forestry is we have something called forest certification in which uh, a whole number of, 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 of protocols are laid out in, in extensive documents that says, okay, here, here are the things we measure and, and there is rationale for why each one of those things are measured. So, so an LCA, if you put, for wood, if you put LCA together with certification, you know, you've really got a process in which you're taking into account really all the aspects of what's going on uh, so that someone who's environmentally concerned about purchasing can really tell what they've done and what the difference is between purchasing product A and product so, B. So uh, just kind of thinking out loud, so LCA in, in combined with certification would give us more insight into, uh, you know, would, would make it easier for us to compare the impacts of wood from a certified forest uh, against impacts of wood from a forest that might not be certified. But how does certification, does certification help us, Jim, in, in understanding uh, in the analysis you just gave between steel and wood, or is it, is it merely comparing one forest to another? Well, certification is, is useful in comparing one forest to another, as you suggest. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because at the same time, you, you may be aware that the, the first certification program that was put out there was by the Forest Stewardship Council. Uh, and at exactly the same year that the environmental community began to uh, work toward creating the Forest Stewardship Council, they also attempted to create a mining stewardship council. Uh, the mining industry pushed back hard. And still today, 2020, 30 years after certification began, there is no certification program for steel or any other metal. Um, so one, one of the things we can say about wood is, uh, wood is the only material out there today. If, you, if you're really concerned about environmental impacts of whatever it is you're thinking about purchasing, it's the only material which you can buy in a way that you get third party verification of what impacts are related to collection. And um, so looking at an example of uh, at, at least a step closer to a life cycle analysis, I, I in, in reading your book, The Irresponsible Pursuit of Paradise, Jim, I was struck by a story that you tell there um, that, that I had never really thought about. So 30 years ago or so, uh, you know, folks were concerned about the habitat of the northern spotted owl out in the Pacific Northwest. And President Clinton after a lot of deliberation, announced a new policy. And you write that, that the new policy would have reduced the timber harvest by about 4 billion board feet per year. So a tremendous reduction, about 80% reduction from 5 billion to 1 billion board feet per year. But you say they never really considered a lot of really important aspects of, of looking not just at 
the the habitat of the spotted owl, but many other things too. And some examples you give in the book are what environmental impacts might be expected in the places from which the timber might be replaced. So if we use the same amount of timber, but harvest it somewhere else, well, what are the impacts there? We might see a beneficial impact to spotted owl habitat here, but what about there? Uh, what environmental impacts might be expected from substitute materials? So if instead of importing wood from somewhere else, we substitute uh, plastic, steel, aluminum, or other products, what are those impacts? And then you talk a lot in the book about, uh, th was there ever a plan about reducing consumption? And so I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that on its face that some people uh, might have been very happy to hear about reduced harvesting in the Pacific Northwest, but you point out that it's not quite that simple. Yeah, that uh, that decision on the spotted owl, I, I turned out to be very much involved with that. I traveled out to the Pacific Northwest a number of times and was involved in, in doing review of, of things that were going on there. Um, and if we go back into history, uh, the, the president, uh, the, the, the approach there was to create a committee of 40 people, uh, 39 of whom were ecologists. Uh, and um, so this committee deliberated and they, they wound up looking at a, quite a number of options for what might be done. And the whole purpose of this was to protect uh, what was viewed as endangered uh, species of not only the Northern Spotted Owl, but the Marbled Marlette. Um, and there was one economist on that panel, and he, um, after a, a, a while in trying to serve on the panel, he resigned because he said no one was listening to any kind of economic argument. And, and anyway, so the, the, the group agreed on option nine, which as you pointed out, reduced harvest by about 4 billion board feet. That was an 80% reduction in harvest from, from federal forests not overall. I, I think overall it accounted for something like maybe 10 or, or 18, I think it might have been as much as 18% of U.S. softwood harvest. Thank you time. for clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, I misspoke there. Yeah, but anyway, it was a big number. And so, and so this committee, uh, being who they were, I mean, they looked at what they thought was the right thing to do from an ecological point of view. But astoundingly, to me at least, in watching all of this, and in listening to what was taking place uh, kind of on the, on, the, on the side, this was being touted as the most comprehensive environmental review ever conducted, ever, you know, and, and there were even representatives of the U.S. that went overseas to, to tell the story, how successful it was. And, and in looking at this from a systems point of view, I was stunned by the fact that nobody on the committee asked the question, as you've kind of pointed out, what will happen? First of all, what's the plan? Where will 4 billion board feet come from, if not from the Pacific Northwest? <clears throat> Where? Nobody asked that question. And because they didn't ask that question, then nobody asked the question, well, what will the environmental impacts be <clears throat> in this alternative site, wherever it is? What will be the impacts on endangered species? in that alternative location, wherever it is. Um, is there any plan to reduce consumption of wood? And if there is, what's likely to be substitute for it? Will it be steel? Will it be aluminum? You know, what's concrete construction? What's the plan? And if that is, and if that did happen, if it would happen, what's the environmental impact of that? Which turns out 
if you do a life cycle assessment of that, it's huge. It's a huge negative impact of that substitution. And you, so you so you added all of that stuff. You know, what's what what is the impact of transportation from point A to point B? What would that be? Because none of these things were asked, the the impacts happen anyway. I get a drink of water here. Sure. The um, Because these things weren't addressed, didn't mean that they didn't happen. One of the things that happened right away was <clears throat> steel had never made up any kind of a significant percentage of U.S. framing and U.S. houses. Well, it went up to four to six percent right away. And again, the impact of that was very large from an environmental point of view. But but no one was aware of it, so you know what the heck. <clears throat> Another thing that happened was immediately. The mills in the Pacific Northwest didn't shut down. They simply started bringing in wood <clears throat> from other places, from as far as uh, the Black Hills to the east, uh, tremendous amounts out of Canada. They started bringing wood in from Chile. They were bringing wood in from New Zealand, even started importing wood from the Russian Far East. And in watching this, it was about a year and a half to two years later, I, 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 at that time I was regularly monitoring the Oregonian because I carried a lot of stories on this. There was an article in there about the impacts of, of harvesting for U.S. export on endangered cranes in the Russian Far East. And in reading that, I thought, okay, did anybody ever think that this might happen? No, they didn't because they didn't look at these impacts. In, it, in any case, there, there were a number of impacts from that decision, which was hailed as one of the greatest environmental impacts decisions of all time. Can you talked earlier works. about the challenge of comparing, say, the environmental impact of a hole in the ground from a mine uh, with that of a clear-cut forest that'll regenerate. Wood's a renewable resource. It grows back, takes some time, but it grows back. Uh, and in the book, you cite some uh, pretty impressive uh, numbers in terms of the volume of wood uh, uh, that's been produced over a you know, over several decades and, and, and the, you know, the ever increasing um, uh, total volume of standing wood in this country, it's been increasing for decades, despite a very large annual harvest. So how do you account for that in life cycle assessment? How do you account for the renewability of, of one resource, wood, and the fact that substitute resources are not renewable? In life cycle assessment, one measure that you use is depletion of non-renewable resources. And it's, just, it's, it's one of a number of measures. One of the things I should have said about the power of LCA is that it enables you to simultaneously look at a great number of measures. Uh, you look holistically at a problem. Uh, whereas uh, there are various um, uh, programs for evaluating materials, for example, uh, uh, in agriculture, you might have uh, GMO-free. Okay, well, that's one measure, you know, kind of thing. You, you might have a, have a, uh, something that says that uh, this is uh, this beef was raised humanely. Okay, that's one issue. But in LCA, you look at a whole bunch of issues. So one of the factors that you can look at is 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 this a renewable resource? And so the measure is depletion of a non-renewable resource. Now, having said that, uh, if we compare wood and steel, steel is a non-renewable, iron ore is a non-renewable resource. Nonetheless, it's quite abundant in the world. 
And so in comparing wood and steel, yes, iron ore is, a non, is non-renewable, and yet it's so abundant in the Earth's crust that it's really not very important. Now, on the other hand, if we start comparing wood as a biofuel <clears throat> as against petroleum product or a fossil fuel, now that does become an important factor, okay? So non-renewable is taken, renewability is taken into account. It's just more important in some cases than it is. So Jim, I've known you for a while and I remember early in my career at the University of Minnesota hearing about your environmental quiz. And I'd like to um, uh, talk to you about that a little bit. So you you tell the story in the book about uh, when you were teaching in one of your courses and being kind of challenged by some students who who were not pleased with what they were hearing and had had uh, strong opinions about some environmental issues. And that prompted you to start something, start these environmental quizzes that you did for a long time. Would you tell us that story? Yeah, well, I think it was in 1991 uh, and I was teaching a course called Natural Resources and Raw Materials. And the idea of that course was really to introduce some of the, these kinds of issues to, to non-typical to students other than the ones that I typically uh, had in my classes. So I did have some natural resources uh, students in those classes, but I also, I, I think at the time, the University of Minnesota had 18 different colleges. Uh, and in any given semester in that natural NRES class, I would have uh, nine, 10, 11 colleges represented. It was actually the, the, the most favorite course that I ever taught because the dynamics in there was really neat. Uh, I had every law students, medical students, you know, liberal arts students, everybody, a whole, whole range of, of people. And, and we, we kind of had this in a discussion format. It was a stadium seating sort of classroom in which the, it was a fairly large class, but the students were pretty close. Anyway, so I got to the point of the class, I got talking about use of wood as a raw material. And I started talking about harvesting of trees and things. And, and I taught that class a couple of times, but in this particular day, I started getting these challenge, they weren't just challenging questions, they were just outright hostile questions, basically how, how, why in the world would you ever suggest that you harvest a tree sort of questions. And, and it, was not, it was a lot more than just one student. And so I left that class that day and I was just blown away. I thought, where in the world are these students coming from? You know, this emotion around this. So I went back to my office and I sat there a few minutes and I just started writing down a quiz just to find out, okay, what do they know? And I asked questions like, uh, are the, is the extent of forest in the United States increasing or decreasing? Are we harvesting more than we're growing? We're growing more than we're harvesting. Uh, <clears throat> what is the, the situation with respect to world metals? Are we about to, you know, are we about to have our last trouble full of ore, you know, and, and so on? <clears throat> Uh, I asked questions about world population trends and everything else. And what I found out was that the class, the, the, the answers were not only wrong, but they were, they were epically wrong. I mean, they were so far off reality that it was, it was just amazing. So about three or four months after that, I went to an international conference. And so I was talking to a group of, 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 professors from North American universities one evening, I told them about this quiz and I told them about the experience I had. 
And, and from that dinner, I got, I think it was 13 people said, well, we want to do that at our university. So we did this. We, all across North America, we, we reproduced this quiz. And except for one university, which I think the professor taught to the quiz so that they looked good and smart, uh, these answers were almost right on top of each other, that people were, were far, far off reality. And that even included students who were studying forestry. I was surprised to see. Well, since that time, I've given that quiz, I, I had a paper mill, I think, right up there where you are uh, in, in uh, Cloquet, near the Forestry Center. Every employee of the paper mill, uh, with the, the help of the management of the company, took this quiz. And I thought, well, here's people working for the forest product company. Surely they'll know the answer. They did slightly better than the students, but only slightly. Um, I did that quiz with, uh, with groups of Boy Scouts. I did it with, uh, with adults. Uh, there was a group that operated for quite a long time in Duluth called Leadership Duluth. I don't know if it still is in operation. I've used it with that group three or four times. And anyway, what I found in doing thousands thousands of these of these surveys is that is it what will happen is people will answer on the pessimistic side of things not only that i played around with the quiz and i kept change I, I would change the answers from year to year so that i would put even more pessimistic answers in there uh, more to the pessimistic side or wrong and what i found was people tended to go as far to the pessimistic side of wrong as you would give them an option in a, in a multiple choice quiz. It was, a, it was a stunning result. And I just recently, just three weeks ago, I finished reading a book by Hans Rosling. Uh, and if, if you haven't read it, I mean, it's a fascinating book. Uh, and uh, and uh, in What's it called, book, Jim? Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not remembering the name of it. I'm going to look it up right here. Uh, the name of the book is Factfulness, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. And it was fascinating me to find out that in 1991, the, the, the same year, he, right. he was a professor of, of global health in the Netherlands. He gave a quiz to his students over almost exactly the same issue. But instead no of kidding. focusing on resources, he looked at percent of women who are educated every year, the percent of people in the world who get vaccinated and all. And he found exactly the same thing, that people will go almost as far pessimistic as you let them in a, in a multiple choice quiz. Huh. And, and, yeah. So, so anyway. What is that, how do you interpret uh, those results, Jim? It, it, that's actually very interesting what you say about the human health quiz and the fact that people are oriented toward pessimism there too but so how do you what, what do those results tell you well i came to my conclusions and then i read uh hans rosling's book and and uh he has a little different perspective which i which i thought was fascinating my perception was and and we subsequently did some studies on this was that it had to be coming out of the schools i mean what the heck i mean it has to be but so first thing we started out doing, we did uh, uh, interview groups uh, with teachers here in Twin Cities, in the Twin Cities metro area, and over you know kind of the 13 county area. And so my hypothesis was, okay, they're teaching about forests, and what they're teaching is wrong. So we got got to having these these groups, and they they don't talk about forests. 
and mm. we, we did like four or five of these and we got we got to the end of it and it was no so my hypothesis was shot because it yeah. couldn't be coming out of discussion because they weren't talking about forests. so we got to the last one of these and we actually provided dinner for the people and you know to set up discussion and so on and i finally and i said to this guy you know kind of getting the end i said well do you ever talk about tropical forest they oh yeah oh yeah we talk about tropical forest and i said oh and i thing you know yeah so we got yeah. talking about this and i said well what do you teach well it turned out that almost every teacher talks about tropical deforestation in some way or another and the information they're using are coming from wherever they can get them and the most popular source was a fairly radical environmental group based out of san francisco and which notoriously puts things out that are rather exaggerated in an attempt to raise money that's where they were getting information so i thought aha you know there people are students are getting their impressions about forests from from tropical forests and they're just extending that to forests as a whole mm -hmm. and and i thought you know that's that's maybe a logical answer to what's going on um Rostling did some more extensive things than I did, and he, his view was between what you hear in the media and, and, uh, and so on is, is not helpful, but his main theme is he would test students and he would ask, for example, uh, he'd ask questions about the state of poverty around the world. How many people live in poverty worldwide? How many, what percent of girls are educated as opposed to boys? Uh, what percent of the world's children are inoculated, you know, and so on. Yeah. And what he found was the students would answer correctly. In, in 2007, they would answer correctly for what was true in 1950. In huh. other words, the students would learn in their outdated textbooks what was true and then that re remained their reality for the rest of their life and and he said he's tested nobel laureates and found exactly that he he he, he used, makes the comparison between chimpanzees and human <laughs> he said even a chimpanzee will get that right after 30 percent 33 percent of the time you give them three choices he yeah said, no even nobel laureates get it wrong get it worse than so on so anyway, there's, there, there are probably a number of reasons for this. Um, there's also a tendency for people to just somehow think in pessimistic terms. Uh, at least that's his premise. Um, so I, I still today don't know completely the answer, uh, but we've continued to do this quiz on our Dovetail website. It just on um, people on a voluntary basis come in. We're getting the same kind of, kind of results. No kidding. So people yeah, can choose so, it and opt in. Yeah. So it's a it's a, an ongoing challenge. It, this business of educating people about what's true and what isn't true isn't something that's a one off. You don't do it and say, "Okay, I'm done." You know, we'll move on to something else. It it appears to be just well. It sure is, and it you know, your your conclusion I think is interesting, and it, and it uh, uh, it's hard to hard to say if it's. Um, you know what what the true story is but what you said about tropical forests really makes sense i mean the situation is so different down there it's that's a that's a question of land conversion in most cases from forest to agricultural or some other use which is very different from forest management uh you know uh, and, and harvesting timber and maintaining forest cover 
So uh, some of those misconceptions make sense that they would arise from, from consideration of tropical forests and then applying that thinking to temperate forests. Yeah, and even, even in tropical forests, we did include a question about that. <clears throat> and you'd ask people, what's the primary reason for, for a loss of forests in the tropics? And not surprisingly, maybe the number one answer is logging. Uh, when, and right. that is a factor, but it's about sixth. Uh, yeah. Agriculture is about 85% of the driver for tropical deforestation. Right. But right. Jim, my impression, it's interesting. That. I remember coming to Minnesota 20 years ago and going to some early meetings, uh, Minnesota Forest Resources Council, Landscape Committee meetings and other things, these broad meetings designed to bring together people from a variety of perspectives. And those conversations were really contentious. There were times when, uh, you know, I, I, I would be at those meetings and thinking, oh boy, you know, this is really, I've gotten myself into a into a controversial, um, you know, setting here, and and this is this is this is really an issue. My impression is that that is less the case now, uh, certainly here in Minnesota than it uh, than it was then, and I, I could I could guess uh, at some reasons for that. But I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts. Is that your impression as well? And and what do you attribute that to? I think Minnesota has done a great job. I think better than, than many other states in bringing this to the fore and uh, refusing to, to take a, a simply defensive stance. Um, no, I think, I think Minnesota has done a lot of things right. But what I would also observe that, that the lack of contentiousness you talk about is not necessarily translate to the rest of the, of the country or, or around the world. Um, you know, you and I both read, read things a lot and you, you continue to see, uh, I read weekly uh, things that just make my hair stand on end, statements that are just patently not true, that are put out there as, as the absolute truth. Um, and, and I think some of it goes back to this business of misperception that we just, just talked about. Yeah. Uh, Jim, looking to the future, you've you've written a little bit both for Dovetail and uh, and in the book, The Irresponsible Pursuit of Paradise, about the emerging bioeconomy, and and you write pretty optimistically about the bioeconomy. So, uh, what what is the bioeconomy, and why do you think it has a positive and kind of bright future? A bioeconomy is one in which um, society would rely to a much greater extent on bio-resources, biomaterials than it does uh, today, um, and or would continue to rely on, on materials. Um, so wood is a biomaterial. It would uh, be uh, an important part of this economy. Uh, agricultural products, agriculture residues would be a bigger part of this society. Um, but the reason why discussion about a bioeconomy is important, um, I think there's a feeling and, and well, there is a feeling out there that, that wood is a material of the past uh, and that, you know, the world has moved on and we use modern materials and so on. But as we've talked about, wood is renewable. It's the only major raw material we have that is. If you really think about, about wood, it, it's really, well, I like to talk about it as the, 
and, and this is not a term I came up with, but it's the greatest story never told. This is a material that's created out in the forest. It captures, a growing tree captures carbon dioxide from the air and converts it to oxygen. It converts, uh, it brings water up through the trunk, combines it with carbon dioxide in the leaves, it converts that to a sugar. That sugar flows down the tree through the inner bark and through the rays and right at that interface, uh, sugar is created into, is con converted into long-term polymer, cellulose, and several other kinds of sugars. And uh, combined with this thing called lignin that forms, and you get this stuff called wood. And that is completely created using solar energy. It, at a time when society is trying to figure out how in the heck we can be more efficient using solar energy, there it is. That, that forest behind you, you know, that's, that's capturing solar energy and converting it into a very useful material which can be used for construction, it can be used for energy generation, it can be used for a whole range of, it can even be used to produce chemicals that are right now produced by, by from petroleum and so on. So we've, we've got this material there. And when you, when you do a, a life cycle assessment of its use, say, in construction, and you compare this wood, which is produced using free solar energy, and the fact that you can convert it to useful materials very easily as compared to things that you might substitute it with, you find out that wood has a very low environmental impact compared to other things. Uh, nothing tends to come close to wood in terms of, of low impacts across a broad range of environmental indicators. Um, and so that alone, it seems to me, is a reason that we need to not overlook wood in a, in a bioeconomy, that in fact, we need to think more seriously about the fact that here, here's a material that, that going forward uh, needs to be an important part of our, of, of our thinking and, and so forth, which these are the raw materials and chemicals. And so so. Uh, that's nice. It, it seems like it should. Do you think that it is? I mean, we hear more about mass timber. You write in the book and, and elsewhere about uh, new kinds of building materials, the cross-laminated timbers and looking back a couple of decades, oriented strand board and new kinds of products that enable the use of wood in, in applications requiring greater structural stability and strength than maybe single boards and lumber. Uh, so it'd be nice if that happened. Do you think it actually will? Are you seeing, Jim, when you look at materials use in construction, is there a meaningful increase or reason to believe that we'll see more, more use of wood in, in the future? Yeah, if you, do, you go back just about 1980 or so, uh, maybe to the 70s, there was research going on in laboratories such as ours at Gofford Lab at the University of Minnesota yeah. and around the world. And people were working on different ways to put wood together, ways to take small diameter trees and make them into large uh, cross-section timbers, making large things out of small resources and so on. And that work was kind of quietly going on. And so oriented strand board was developed, parallel strand lumber, uh, laminated strand lumber, uh, laminated veneer lumber. All of these developments took place and, and those products were with about a 10 or 15 year lag were, were introduced into the market. Uh, and so we had 
uh, things like garage door headers, instead of just being solid wood, yeah. were, were better and you didn't get the sagging across the span and all that. Well, those are interesting little developments, but, but what the general public didn't understand was that all of those little parts and pieces were part of a bigger uh, development, which really culminated with this uh, development of cross laminated timber, which is basically a product like plywood, except the plies are not little veneers, they're full size pieces of lumber laid cross and cross directions in different laminations, and you make these huge uh, one foot thick, 20 inch thick, you know, panels. Yeah. Uh, they're pre cutting everything they can build out of. So when you took that and you combined it with engineered timber materials, Paralam uh, and uh, LVA and all those other kind of things, all of a sudden, all of the pieces were in place to build very large structures out of wood in a way that couldn't be done before. So who would have thought, even 10 years ago, that on the University of British Columbia campus, there would be an 18-story wood dormitory? Who would have thought that in, that in Milwaukee, uh, what's going up and is under construction today is a tw it's either 26 or 28-story wood building? That in Paris, buildings of 40 stories are being contemplated, that in Northern Europe, those kinds of buildings are already in place and so on. There's, there's an absolute revolution taking place in, in tall buildings in the U.S. Uh, to wood. Uh, and it's, it's quite something to see. Uh, there are still people who are saying, oh my goodness, you know, this can't be done. We're going to run out of wood. Uh, but we're not. Um, and so on and so on. At the same time, that revolution is taking place. So, so we had research that was, you know, 30, 40 years ago that's now really visible. At the same time today, there is research going on in laboratories. You know, you can make gasoline out of wood. You can make biobutanol out of wood. Turns out that's probably not the most efficient way to capture heat value wood. A combined heat and power system to produce, you know, heat and power rather than liquid fuel is probably the best way to go. But nonetheless, all of those things are, are possible. It's possible to make plastics out of wood. It's possible to make a whole range of chemicals that are now derived from, from, from uh, fossil fuels, which um, if at some point in the future, which there will be a point in the future, which fossil fuels become near and dearer and much harder to come by than they are today. Well, what's sitting on the shelf there is a whole range of technologies ready to fill in for part of that. Um, which will become very important. Jim, I don't know future. if you can easily summarize this. I wonder if you might just run through a, a quick LCA of, say, you know, the use of wood in a house, wood versus aluminum, and just run through the major, you know, wood is, you've already talked about, it's, it's derived from solar energy and, and carbon dioxide. Is it possible to, to summarize those differences and give us some sense? Are we talking about a small difference here? Or are we talking about a a massive difference in terms of carbon footprint and other important metrics. How, how, how does that play out? Well, let me give a couple of examples. I, I was involved in a, in a study. I was a, uh, one of the uh, people who helped, uh, the co-founder of a group called Corum, the Consortium for Research on Renewable Industrial Materials. And that brought together quite a number of, I think originally we had 13 uh, universities across North America and, and then 
the National Renewable Energy Lab and some other entities that, that we worked with closely. Um, and so we did comparisons of buildings and we did a building and uh, a house in Minneapolis, a typical house in Minneapolis, and we yep. had a typical house in Atlanta, Georgia. And so when we looked at the whole structure and we did, you know, we looked at every nail and every screw and plywood, and lumber and everything else. And, and again, we went all the way back through the, through the whole entire process and looked at emissions, effluence and waste. And what does that mean? And so on and so on. And so what we found was, uh, I, I think in Atlanta, we compared a wood structure with a concrete structure, concrete block. That was yeah. the most common way of building. And in Minneapolis, we compared wood and steel as a, as a structural framing system. Now, in saying that we compared wood and steel, a steel building still, if you build on a steel today, you're still going to put on a plywood roof or an oriented strand board roof. Sure. And you're going to have wood sheathing and so on. So is it a steel building or is it a steel building that has some wood or what is yeah. it? And then, and then buildings typically, either Atlanta or here, have concrete foundation. Yeah. Right, so if you took a whole ball of wax in Minneapolis and you looked at it and you, and you include the concrete and the wood and steel and everything else, what we found as a difference in the building was some, and I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but somewhere around a 17, 18, 19% difference wow. in, in energy use and, and so on. Well, that's, that's a big number. Okay. But what if you went through an analysis and you factored out the common concrete foundation, which it turns out is the biggest impact in every building. What if you factored that out and only looked at above ground walls, for example? Well, so when you do that, then you found out that wood has about half of the impact of steel, wow. about uh, less than half of the impact of, of concrete block construction and so on. So when you, you look at, at, you know, just focus in on two materials, you find vast differences hmm. every time consistently in, in favor of wood. Um, and, of, and of course, the assumption is always made uh, in a life cycle assessment that, that if you're talking about wood, it's harvested responsibly, sustainably. If it isn't, then, then there's a problem and you, you, know, you shouldn't be using it. But so yeah, from yeah. a life cycle point of view, there are very. Jim, large you've talked about a number of different aspects of wood. You talked a few minutes ago about solar energy um, and and other things. And wood is wood is made of carbon, um, and we hear more and more about concern related to climate change associated with increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations and so on. So, would you talk a little bit about wood and carbon? Yeah, wood is. You know, we've we've talked about. Uh, the, the formation, the, the process of wood formation and photosynthesis and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you look at woods around the world, you know, there are thousands, tens of thousands of species around the world. But when you when you look at them from a standpoint of chemical composition, uh, remarkably, uh, they're about 50% carbon by weight. Some are 44%, some are 52, but around 50% carbon by weight. Uh, North American species are all right at that 50% by carbon weight. So if you if you look at your kitchen table or the desk that you might be sitting at or whatever, the wood in there is half carbon by weight and it's storing that carbon, sequestering that carbon for as long as the, the thing that you're looking at exists. And that's true of your house. More than 80% of the houses on the landscape are built of wood 
and and as a life cycle assessment specialist, I look at those houses and I or look at a neighborhood and I say, wow, there's a carbon pool right there, you know. And here, this neighborhood over here is another here's another carbon pool. There's a lot of carbon that's stored right. there. Now you can't say that about any other material. You, the, you know, the, you've probably heard of high carbon steel. Well, high sure. carbon steel contains an infinitesimal amount of, of, of carbon. Plastic, plastic actually contains quite a bit of, of carbon, stored carbon. Uh, but of course, it's, it's fossil carbon that's been taken out of the ground and put there. And that carbon's going to be released when, when it, whatever happens to that plastic in the end. Um, so anyway, wood stores a lot of carbon and it stores that as long as the wood exists. At the time that wood might be combusted for energy or whatever, then that carbon would be re-released to the atmosphere. Um, now, if you start comparing materials again, let's say that we want to compare a, 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 a concrete structure to a wood structure. A concrete construction is being touted today uh, as as an environmentally friendly thing to do. Hmm. Well, concrete is made of cement, uh, usually Portland cement, and then sand and gravel. And the percentage of cement in a mixture is so, usually somewhere around 12, 13, 14, 15%, something like that. To make cement, you start with limestone, which is calcium carbonate, CaCO3, chemically. And you put that in a kill and you raise it to a couple thousand degrees, which takes a lot of energy. But in, in that process, calcium carbonate, CaCO3, is reduced to lime, which is calcium oxide, CaO. Okay? It, so if you think about chemistry, just think about it in mind, CaCO3, CaO, what's given off? CO2 was given off yeah. as a result, and massive amounts of it. So the concrete industry has a massive problem going forward, especially if societies decide to get serious about this business of carbon emissions. Because even if the, no matter how efficient you are in providing energy to the lime kill, the basic chemistry of converting of limestone to lime emits enormous amounts of carbon. So if you compare wood with, with concrete construction, it wins every time on every environmental measure across the board. And in terms of global warming potential, wood is a small fraction of concrete. Wood also wins that battle when you compare wood with steel as construction material, but the difference is a lot yeah. smaller than it is between huh. concrete. Well, Jim, boy, this has been a good conversation. I want to thank you for uh, for your time. I really appreciate your uh, joining me on Camp 8. It's been fun over the years to learn from your work. You mentioned wood being 50% carbon by dry weight. One of, the, one of my favorite slides in talks that I give to many audiences involves showing a pile of logs and asking what this is. And I always enjoy, you know, people will look at it and squint and some clever person from the middle of the audience will say, I think it's aspirin. And no, it's, it's red pine. Right. And, and, uh, and I say, well, that's, that's carbon. You're looking at a picture of carbon. That's wood is 50% carbon by dry weight. And, and, uh, that's just one of many things that I've picked up from you over the years. I want to thank you for that. And, and thanks again for uh, joining us here on camp eight. Well, Eli, thanks so much for connecting with Jim. I always really appreciate 
Jim's perspective on the world and I feel like I learned something new or a, a concept that I once learned from Jim gets um, reinforced, so to speak, basically every time I hear him speak. So I really appreciate that you invited him to Camp 8. What did you think or the main takeaways from your interview uh, with Jim? Well, there's always so much there. I, I just really enjoy talking with Jim. He's so well-informed. He's been at this a long time. You know, one of the things that stuck out in my mind is that when we think about forestry, you know, we, we're always thinking about trade-offs. We're thinking about how the different things that we do in the woods affect wildlife and affect water and affect wood production and affect all these different things. And Jim takes that kind of thinking and he really amplifies it. He brings it well beyond forestry, you know, well beyond just wood to thinking about the full cycle of impacts that the decisions we make have. You know, in forestry, one thing we do is try to provide for human needs. And, and we try to do that with the lowest environmental impact that we can. Uh, and sometimes that's not as simple as it looks, whether you're positive or negative or however you feel about timber harvesting. Um, you know, the fact is that we have an impact. And, and Jim, the way that Jim looks at the world has really helped me to think about that impact, I, I think, in a more holistic and, and um, kind of comprehensive way. So I just, I always enjoy talking with him. I always learn things from him and I, I enjoyed the interview. And it's interesting, I think one of the interesting takeaways for me was that when you're talking about LCA, he, he specifically mentions that it's data-driven. And I think going through that process of knowing what does actually have data versus what is opinion opinion or anecdote i think that that was a big takeaway for me too it's just like yes yeah, some of these things we can't actually measure the cultural influence so to speak can't be measured in an lca necessarily because we don't have really a way to make that into uh, a data metric which is challenging uh, because we want things to be data driven but we know that there's also interpretation around those data or just some things that can't really be included as a piece of data so I, I thought that was that was a, a cool section of the of the interview. I'm uh, talking about the limitations, I guess, of of LCA. Yeah, it was also interesting, wasn't it? We were talking about this earlier about the the consumption side. You know, during the whole Pacific Northwest uh, story that he told, it's just it's kind of uh, it's kind of amazing to think about that. There's really no discussion, not only of the things that that Jim went into about environmental impacts in other places or from alternate products, substitute products, but also uh, about, you know, what about reducing consumption? And, um, you know, we all do the things we can do. I think, uh, you know, we're all more and more uh, members of our society, I think, are, you know, are thinking about consumption and are, and are aware of some of those things. But it's, um, it requires continual effort and, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how, how easy it is, you know, hearing Jim talk about this, how easy it is to just lose sight of that, forget about the consumption side entirely, and just think about, um, you know, the, the production side. Yeah, we don't necessarily think of that trade-off of, if we're not producing this here, are we going to say that we're not going to take that resource, or we're not going to use that resource, or are we just going to choose to be blind, basically, to where that resource is being produced? and the environmental impacts in that location rather than in the location that we think is so pristine and precious or whatever our perspective is on that. I thought the, 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 um, the environmental quiz I, was a huge memory from taking the class with Jim. So I really yeah. like he's still using that basically and that it's still informative. I think the, 
the main informative piece for me when hearing you two discuss that was um, this idea that uh, we're oriented towards pessimism. And that is something that you and I have talked about. Uh, and I, I basically feel like I've recognized that in myself and really try to make sure that I'm working against that, which maybe means that I'm, um, I'm biasing myself in a different way. But I also feel like just what I've learned about our cultural biases is we, we, we can only see the things we're looking for, so to speak. And we're basically trained to be critical thinkers, which is positive. But that also means that we're also trained to see things on the negative side, which is why around here at the Forestry Center, when we talk about Camp 8 and the trees that are 200 years old and whether or not they're declining or what trajectory they're on, I make sure to try and at least consider the, oh, uh, what's the positive interpretation of this? Because I know I have that tendency towards pessimism and, and trying to actively work against that to some extent, bias my make sure I'm seeing things not just from the pessimistic side, not just the 2% of things that aren't going well, but the 98% of things that maybe are going as planned that we just haven't seen because I'm, we're seeing the things that aren't going so well. Well, sounds like he really got us both thinking as usual. This was a fun episode and I'm glad Jim was willing to be part of it. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in, stay safe, and keep in touch.